Uh, that one takes me back. I don't know if Matt made a comment about it last week. I love that bumper. It's a four-year-old nostalgia for you. Welcome to Renovation Church, if we've not said that already to you. Uh, we're glad you're here today. In case you're wondering why, Matt is not here. Um, he is speaking down the road at University Baptist Church on uh, the end of Kemp. And he is filling the pulpit because they are going through some, some really rough some really rough church stuff. Um, they recently lost their pastor uh, to a, a fall, and uh, their youth pastor is going to be departing as well. Are we good? <laughs> their youth pastor is going to be departing as well um, shortly. And so they are, they're just hurting. And um, so please be in prayer for him. He's already done <laughs> one sermon. He has to do two. Uh, and they're short, which is uh, amusing to me. I'm still getting a lot of echo. Um, he's already done one. He's got another one coming up, uh, maybe now. Um, so be praying for him. Be praying for them. Um, they have been incredibly, incredibly faithful and helpful partners for Renovation Church um, since we since we began. Um, they used to send a roadie crew here for us uh, to help with setup, and that was when setup was crazy complicated. Uh, now it's it's pretty easy-ish. I'm not going to speak for those that do setup. Um, and they have cared for us financially for a long time. Um, they obviously, as many of you know, let us use their facilities for our classes. Um, so they've, they've just been huge helps to us um, and great encouragements. Um, so we want to, uh, to care for them as best as possible uh, by filling their pulpit this week um, and caring for them in this time of, of extreme difficulty. I, I, I just don't, even, I don't know. Um, so please, please uh, be in prayer for them. Um, but uh, I'm excited to, to preach this week just because I enjoy preaching, but also, um, as I've told many of you, this is my favorite series that we've ever done uh, at Renovation. Um, I believe it's from 2013, uh, and we've referenced it all the time. This has one of the greatest impacts uh, to Matt and I's preaching, but also it really sets the foundation and stage for the way that we read the scriptures. And so... This idea of kingdom as we trace it throughout the Bible really, really, really sets the stage for how we encounter God and his activity in this place. So I'm excited uh, about being in this journey with you guys now. For many of you, this is your first time hearing any of this. Um, and even today, you're going to hear a, a, a three-word uh, like definition of something that we use often uh, and it comes from this. So we've, we've talked about it before, and, and we get to share in this together. So with that, um, I want to pray for, uh, for our time, but also for Matt while he's still over there and for their church. So let's pray together, and then uh, we will begin. Father, we thank you so much for your graciousness. You are so, so, so kind to us. And Father, I thank you for the faithfulness of our people here uh, to study your word. Father, to take time to look at it and understand it from a big picture perspective as we walk through this series together. And Father, I pray that you would give us a love for your word uh, that is not just ruling since we feel small details, but Father, because we can see, I can see the beauty of what you have been doing since before time began. And Father, as we enter into this time together today, when we look at one of the most difficult parts of the scriptures, that you would break our hearts in a way that only you can, 
in order to make them so much more than what they are. Father, we pray for a sense of the wrath, a sense of the brokenness that comes with this passage. But Father, we look forward to the end of the day when we see the hope that we have in your Son. Because, all because, we can see past this chapter. We know the big picture. So Father, be with us today as we look at this. I want to pray for my brother Matt as he is preaching uh, in a place that is hurting in a place that he's unfamiliar with, with even those specific hurts that they have and those people. Father, that's challenging uh, in the extreme. Father, they are sheep without a shepherd in a very real sense. Um, and please, please, please uh, give him boldness and courage to bring your word to people that are hurting as the only balm that will help heal their wounds. And Father, we pray for that church. Uh, you would sustain them as they are uh, not just your body, but even part of our body because we all share in your son. Father, give them grace, give them mercy, give them courage, give them boldness in the days to come to be faithful to your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Nathan, I'm still getting a ton of bass, like a lot of behind me. Sorry. I'm about to back up just so it's in front of me. All right. Cool. The parish kingdom. Last week we talked about the pattern of the kingdom, and ultimately, hopefully, you can walk away from the pattern of the kingdom with some sense of a pretty basic definition, right? It's the pattern that we're going to see play throughout the next eight, nine weeks. Now, if you have not taken any time before to look at a whole picture view of the scriptures, then some of these pieces just aren't going to make a ton of sense until we get a little bit farther into the pattern. And that's okay, because you're still going to be able to take these puzzle pieces, as it were, and have them on the table and know what they are, even if you can't see the outside of the box yet. Now, if you have spent some time looking at the scriptures in a holistic sense, in a comprehensive manner, then a lot of these pieces hopefully will help you kind of categorize or, or put some, some space in, in between just all the stories you know. And so for me, when I was growing up, uh, I had lots of Bible given to me, and I knew stuff in every book throughout the scriptures, but I had no idea how they worked together. No clue. Some general sense between the Old and the New Testament, but not a ton. Now, if you ask me what happens in Joel, I could tell you. If you ask me what happens in Malachi, I could tell you. But I have no idea how they're related. I had no idea that Ezra and Nehemiah were related, and they're basically the same idea. And so the idea that the scriptures tell a single story was absolutely foreign to me, other than just saying, well, Jesus, right? I mean, that's the easy one that makes sense, but how do you put the pieces together? And so when we start doing biblical theology, which is what this is, this is a biblical theology of kingdom. What does the whole Bible have to say about a specific topic? So in our particular case, what does the whole Bible have to say? Period. Particularly, though, for us about kingdom or covenant, we're going to see that those are very similar and related. And so when we think about the pattern of the kingdom, it's simply this. God's people in God's place under God's rule and subsequent blessing. That's it. Now, that last little tale we, we sometimes leave off, the subsequent blessing. If you're under God's rule, then you're under blessing. And that little tale we sometimes leave off because it's really those primary three things. But we're going to see today, really soon... Uh, that that tale is important because it may not always be blessing. So, with that, 
I want to, to know out the gate here that this is a difficult week. It's a difficult sermon. Uh, studying this passage this week, even on vacation in, in beautiful Ontario on the lake, just crushed my heart. And I think if you're a redeemed child of the king, it's going to crush yours today too. It's been a very helpful passage for me to dwell on during vacation. I mean, what we're seeing this week today specifically is the reality of what man's kingdom is. We saw the pattern last week, and this week we're going to see the reality of what man's kingdom looks like. If we were to have our way, if we were to have the kingdom the way that we think it should be, today is going to reveal what that looks like. For me, it's absolutely heartbreaking to see myself all over this passage. And when I spend significant time away from Genesis 3, I invariably begin to blame the serpent. And if not the serpent, then Eve. I just put myself in Adam's shoes, like, yeah, we screwed up at the end of the day, but they started the ball rolling, right? I mean, that, that's kind of where I retreat to when I spend time away from this passage. Um, but that, that's not the case. The more time I spend here, the more I see myself moving forward towards the fruit myself. My heart, your heart, I pray, will be exposed on the crucible of this tree, and it will be crushed. I pray that today will be difficult for you. I, I, it would be good for us to realize the reality of what our feudal kingdoms look like, at least for a week. This is a tough passage. This is absolutely fundamentally changing, not just to the earth, but to the cosmos. What happens in Genesis 3. And with that, let's read our passage. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the women, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. <coughs> he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. That you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away every way to guard the way to the tree of life. <coughs> Excuse me. The first thing that we have to see is the demand of the covenant. We cannot enter into this story. <coughs> we cannot begin to take it apart to see how it affects us until we recognize that there is a demand. There is a demand already. You say, well, we're before like the Ten Commandments. We're before even like Abraham and stuff. How is there a demand already on the way in which they should live? We see it clearly from chapter 2. There is a rule for them to abide by. And it's not just a rule, but it's a covenant. There's a covenant at stake here. There's a real and vital element of condition in this covenant relationship, not just in the garden, but in the relationship between man and woman and God. The creation covenant. You see that there's a very real prohibition of the tree. Eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was prohibited, as well as the tree of life. It was prohibited. It was absolutely prohibited. And this was ultimately a prohibition of, and here's our big three-letter word, moral legislative autonomy. This is the key to understanding our kingdom, moral legislative autonomy. You want to break that down, moral, the difference between good and, and bad, right? Right and wrong. Legislative, to have the authority to make rules, laws, principles, right? Our legislative branch in theory. <laughs> autonomy autonomy to be separate from to be apart to be on your own independent right so to on your own have the authority to write or instigate create what is right and wrong moral legislative autonomy man was given the opportunity every hour of every day to exercise his willful submission to the moral legislation of God and if he does that, this covenant that we're talking about, this demand on this covenant already, is that Adam will be a son of God. Adam will be a son of God. God will care for him. And not only that, God will commune with him. It's an entirely different principle to say, well, there is a created being and he, he, he provides. He creates and, and provides and we can utilize this. 
We can have relationship with him. If you're going to wrap your brain around today, if we're going to try to see this hit our hearts today, we have got to understand not the extremeness of this, but the totality of it. Whether you want to take this as the literal, inter- the, the literal events of what happened in the garden or an interpretation of what happened, it happened. And every specific detail is not necessarily important. We're going to talk about a lot of them. But that, what we're looking at is the totality of what happens here. This event shapes everything we know. There's nothing else that you can say about like that. The closest thing that can happen to, to most of us today, and even now, not everyone, is 9-11, right? When that plane hit that tower, everything changed for you as an American. Everything. In many ways, you don't even realize the ways that it changes. And this, <laughs> this is absolutely total in the way that it changes everything. We could have been in the creation covenant and remain sons of God. God cares for us and we're in relationship with God. The garden's a place where God will reside and man will be there with him. Adam has a, has a role to play. He's to be the servant king over the rest of creation. Not only does he get to be in it and be with God and know God, but he gets to work with him. He gets to be his mediator, basically, in this period, in this place. He's the servant king over all of creation. God still is in authority over man, and man, while in authority over woman, is to exercise authority over the rest of creation. And God had simply given them parameters of their freedom. You say, well, freedom rules. Freedom rules. Don't really see how that specifically lines up. But think of it this way. Think of it like a train, right? We talk about it this way. A train. Is a train free? Is a train powerful? I mean, there's a reason we still have trains despite having diesel trucks, yes? A train can move massive amounts of things. And it is absolutely free to do that as long as it remains on the tracks. There's nothing else on the planet that can do what trains do as efficiently, as effective, and as powerful as a train. Unless the train's not on the tracks. The train is absolutely free to do what it is supposed to do, what it is created to do. That's where your analogy would break down if you go too far. What it is created to do when it remains on the tracks, when it stays within the parameters. See, if man will do this, then they'll live in the place of God forever. Under his care, with his provision, and they will be in relationship with him as the people of God. You see, ultimately, the covenant of grace that we see here will run throughout the whole of Scripture. That's what we're tracing all the way through. And and we believe that the covenant of grace and the kingdom of God are essentially the same thing. It's this. God's choosing to establish his kingdom once again among his creation. That's the covenant of grace. That's what we're going to see at the end of chapter 3. So recognize that there's a very real demand on this covenant. Because to have covenant means to have blessing or curse. We're going to talk about that more in the coming weeks. But I want to set it up today. God's people and God's place under God's rule and subsequent blessing. When you are in covenant, 
you experience covenant grace, covenant blessing. When you are out of covenant, it brings curse. We'll see that in Deuteronomy specifically. And so if we are not God's people and we are not in God's place and we are not under his rule, then we will experience curse. The next, we need to recognize your, our natural tendency to rule separate of God. What do I mean here? Well, this is where that moral legislative autonomy part kicks in. And we're going to walk through the first several verses together as we look at this. <coughs> so, God ruled over his people in the garden how? By his word. His word was what told them what they can do, and his word was what told them what they can't do. By the way, his word is also what created everything. Right? So his word is the power by which he rules his people and he rules creation. And so where does Satan attack? The word. It's right where Satan attacks. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. The serpent was more crafty. The serpent was more shrewd. Now, recognize... Nonetheless, he's still God's handiwork, right? The serpent is a created being. He's more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So, this, this creature is already, apparently, usurping God, or trying to. And now he approaches Eve. And, and recognize as we look at this, that as he tempts Eve, she's not under duress. She's not under duress. She's not being coerced. Into this, into this action. The one that tempts her is subordinate to her. Think of it this way. Your boss can coerce you into activity, right? He's not your subordinate. Your kids are subordinate to you if they can still duress and coerce you potentially into action, right? <laughs> kids can do that to a degree, but... Ideally, particularly before sin enters the world, as an adult, I can say, kids, your screaming is driving me crazy, but I can make a rational decision because I'm an adult, and that's what I like to tell myself, right? That's, that's what's going on here. Eve is, is not under duress. It's not her boss coming to her and saying, you've you got to do this or I'm going to fire you. You've got to do this or there's going to be consequences. That's not what happens. It's a subordinate. It's a creature. Man is the pinnacle of creation, and a creature comes to her. So make sure that you recognize that, because a lot of people want to blame the serpent. I want to blame the serpent. But the serpent is subordinate. The tempter begins with a suggestion, rather than an argument. I often begin with an argument. It's not an effective way to communicate. He, being more shrewd and crafty, begins with a suggestion. And, and, and I tried to read it earlier this way, but think about this, just this incredulous tone that he brings. So God actually said? God, God actually said that? Right? That's what I did when I was eight, and my friends had a crazy rule from their parents. Your parents actually said that? You're not allowed to play Pokemon? What? It's monsters. It's fine. It's just a game. That incredulous tone that he brings to it is so disturbing. Who are you to question God? Yes, God actually said. I mean, that's what I would do if I was Eve, right? You just get sarcastic back. 
But in a sense, though, it's flattering. Why? Because it smuggles in this assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. The fact that he begins with a suggestion rather than an argument says, what do you make of this? What do you feel about this? Did he actually say this? Interpret this, Eve. Take this and interpret it. Bring your judgment to this rule. And then you see this exaggeration. You shall not eat of any tree. That's a... It was a further and favorite device of the enemy. This exaggeration of God's rules, do you see that in your life? This, this crushed me when I saw this. This assumption that we can evaluate God's word ourselves. This, this exaggeration of the rules of God is heartbreaking. And he, he dangles it before Eve. He just dangles it out there in front of her. And, and he's trying to draw her into a debate on his terms. If he can get her to engage him in a faulty view, then he's got her. Because where he's arguing from, there's no truth. He's questioning truth. There's no objectivity. There's subjectivity. And Eve is drawn right in. And we know this because she adds to it, neither shall you touch it. Neither shall you touch it. She's a Pharisee already. Hedge, hedge in front of the law. She overcorrects the error. And what, what is she doing when she does that? She's magnifying God's strictness. She's to have many successors in doing that. I do that. That's what makes me a Pharisee. I know the judgment of God, and so I, I go out of my way to not break the law so that I might earn grace, maintain my grace, maintain my righteousness. Where in your life are you magnifying God's strictness? And Satan tempts Eve by emphasizing God's prohibition. What does he not emphasize? The provision. Satan zeroes in on the tree. Satan absolutely forgets about the other 800 acres, the groves, the fields. It's just one tree. So don't, don't think about all the ways that God's provided for you. Look at this. What is he not allowing you to do? And why? Because he reduces a command into a question. Don't eat of the tree. Why can't I eat of the tree? He casts doubt upon God's sincerity. And he defames his motives. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to be God. You'll be like him. He doesn't want that. He's selfish. He's selfish. If you do this, you'll be like him. You, don't, you can't trust him. He's out for himself. And ultimately, he denies the truthfulness of the threat. <laughs> Just wantonly denies it. You won't surely die. Take this, take this fork, put it in a light socket. It won't surely get electrocuted. Who are you? You're a snake. You know nothing. Yes, I will die. No, we lose that. Just a flat contradiction. You will not surely die. So the woman gradually yields to Satan's denials and his half-truths. And, and how? 
How does she do it? So we're thinking about how he attacks the word. Why does she receive it this way? He's going after God's motives. He's going after God's commands. He's going after God's sincerity. He's going after whether or not the, the judgment is actually true. Why does she receive it? She does it this way. She disparages her privileges by adding to the prohibition. We already talked about that a little bit. Neither shall you touch it. It's removing even grace that God has already given her. There's another book that I read while I was on vacation that was helpful for me, and kind of it's called Reset. It's helpful in just protecting uh, my life and my family and my ministry and all these things. And one of the things that it leads with is how often we neglect, we feel like we need grace and, and more grace, and we're, and we're seeking for it and searching for it. And God's like, hello, I gave you stuff already. You're not using it. Eight hours of sleep is grace. Good diet, exercise, those are graces. Friends, those are graces. Use them. Quit looking for other things. If you're not using these, I already gave them to you. And, and that's kind of what's going on right here. She's adding to the prohibition rather than recognizing the grace that she's already got. And then, I think more dangerously, she minimizes the threat. She minimizes the threat. I did this when I was a kid, when I started thinking that I could take my dad's spankings. Is this thing worth it? Yeah, I can take the spanking. I'm getting, I'm, I'm bigger. He's getting, he's a weak old man, right? Then belts start happening, right? That's a different experience. We, we minimize the threat. We think that we can engage the punisher or that it will be worth it. But death is on the line. Death is on the line right here. After the, after this, this question, you will, sure not, you will not surely die. And if we take away any emotions, if we take away anything else that's going on in this place right here, all we see is this. It's the serpent's word against God's. It's the serpent's words against God's. And the first doctrine to be denied in history, at least for man, is judgment. Judgment is the first doctrine to be denied. If modern denials of it are, are very differently motivated, they're still equally at odds with Revelation. Jesus fully affirms judgment in the same passage where we always hear that we should not judge. Matthew 7, 13-27. Jesus fully affirms judgment and warns about it. Now catch this. If you miss anything, if you, if you miss everything else, catch this. The climax of this is a lie that is big enough to reinterpret life. A lie big enough to reinterpret all of life. And it's dynamic enough to redirect the flow of affection and ambition. We just did Jonah, 48 verses, right? That will change your, give you a biblical worldview, right? This lie absolutely redefines life. It changes the way we still interpret this world. So when I talk about totality earlier, that's what I'm talking about. This lie, the serpent's word, against God's absolutely, absolutely causes all of us to reinterpret life 
And it's dynamic enough. It, it is twisted and powerful enough that it redirects the flow of our affections, how we feel about God, and our ambition, what we want or what we think. What did Adam and Eve want before this moment? Communion with God. Safety, as we're going to see in a, in a minute. Provision. Communion with God. What do they want now? To be God. That's their ambition. To be God. So we're going to be tracing how this lie reinterprets our life. And how this lie affects our affections and our ambitions. You see, to be as God and to achieve it, specifically by outwitting him, right? Is an intoxicating idea. To think that we can outthink God and to, to usurp him. Or even just to be like him. That's what the serpent wanted, right? Just to be like God. But now, whether we realize it or not, whether we consciously realize it or not, God will always be regarded as a rival and an enemy. Did you catch that? That is the reinterpretation of life. God is always going to be viewed by us, consciously or not, as our enemy or as a rival to our kingdoms. And so the tempter pits his bald-faced lie, his bare assertion against the word and the works of God. What does he do? He presents divine love as envy. He doesn't want you to be like him. He, he presents service as servility. Serving God turns into you are a servant. <coughs> and finally, he presents a suicidal plunge as a leap of life. He does the same thing to Jesus when he tempts him in the desert. Cast yourself off here. Take the plunge. Jump. And this is the same thing to us. For some reason, we think leaping off of this cliff is actually a leap into life. What does he say? All these things I will give thee. That's the same pattern in Christ's temptation. It's the same as ours. I'll give you all of these things. You'll be like God. You won't surely die. You'll, you'll, you'll be just like Him. You'll have everything that you want. You'll be all that you want to be. And against this human arrogance that we have, to want to be like Him, to view the God of the universe as our enemy and as our rival, is absolutely arrogant. And we have then the picture of the obedience of the one, Romans 5.19, and his taking the form of a servant, Philippians 2.7, which is going to show us, one, our true colors, and two, the true love and service and life found in Jesus. So, when we look at this, the question... I think many of us ask often is what's the wrong here? Is the wrong here the eating of the fruit? 
The wrong here is not the eating of the fruit. It's the disobedience to God's word, to God's rule, that condition on that covenant. It's not an issue of what was so, what was so bad about knowing the difference between good and evil. They already knew the difference. Don't do this, do that. That's the difference. If you don't, you'll die. If you do, you'll live. Good and bad. You got it. The knowledge of good and evil refers to more than just knowing about right and wrong. Knowledge of good and evil has to do with the exercise of absolute moral autonomy. That is to say that knowing good and evil means choosing or determining for oneself what is right or wrong, independently of God. Moral, legislative autonomy. It means to simply just decide what's right and wrong. And we have to be careful when we look at this tree to not try to over-identify things. You see, in the context, the emphasis falls on the prohibition rather than the properties of the tree. There's no explanation of what the tree does, what it looks like. We all think it's an apple, right? Just because that's what we, we know. It's an apple, right? Of course it is. It's not. We don't know. It's a fruit. It doesn't even tell us that. And so where's the emphasis on? The emphasis is on how you treat it. Not the properties of it, but what it is. It is shown to us as forbidden. And so it's idle for us to ask what it might mean in itself. And in fact, that's Eve's error. Where does she engage the serpent on? Not the prohibition. On what it will do. And that's where we, oftentimes, I, I'm, speaking, I'm just going to speak for myself, that's where I fall into that pattern too. I want to engage Satan on, on the properties of the thing rather than the fact that God said no. That's what my daughters do. But why? Can I do this instead? Can we, can we maneuver? No. Just no. No. And we dive right in just like our kids do. You see, as it stands there, prohibited, it presents the alternative to discipleship. And to be self-made. To, to rest one's own knowledge. To have satisfactions and values from the created world and defiance of the Creator. It's to be all that you can be and have everything you want apart from the one who provides. And we can see that even more clearly in the outcome of the experiment in 3.7. You see, in all of this, this dialogue and all of this presentation, the tree plays its part in the opportunity that it offers rather than the qualities it possesses. tree has no power in and of itself. The power is wrapped up in God and his covenant. And so Adam and Eve, when tempted by Satan, their response should have simply been this. We trust God. We trust God. We have a loyal love for him. We will be obedient to God. He said no. came over the tree was a test would adam and eve trust god would they loyally love him would they be obedient to him would they be worshiping the true god or would they trust in their own ability to discern what is right and good and ultimately in that moment they chose to worship their own ability and opportunity to become like god the sin was a choice to worship themselves instead of the one true god and it's the same for the rest of human history in totality. 
Physical idols, sure, will be erected, but internally, man is worshiping his autonomy. That's what we do. I think this is clear outside the church today, and we don't even need to spend time looking at those. But where it might be unclear inside the church is over the question of free will. And we're not going to do a full treatise on that. I have too many pages. Adam and Eve were saying that they want to be rulers in the world. They didn't want God to rule over them. They wanted to rule themselves. And so they were usurping God's authority. They didn't want to be God's people any longer. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. I don't want to be God's people. I'm my own man. I'll be in your place. I appreciate it. I recognize the fact that you have rules, but I also do too. I still expect a blessing. Easy. You've seen this application coming for a mile. It's going to hit you right now. Where are you expressing autonomy? Where in your life are you choosing to exercise autonomy? And look at the way that Eve responds, because that's going to be the telltale signs that we do that. What does she do? She pulls away from her leaders. She wants to be the one to determine for herself. She doesn't want the input. Where do you do those things? Do you pull away? Do you overemphasize the judgment of God? Do you neglect the judgment of God? Adam's decision to be self-legislating made him like God in one sense. But, unlike God, why? Because he is not able to foresee the consequences of his choices, particularly long-term. And we, he can, <laughs> cannot be certain of the issues that are before him. Yes, he knows right and wrong, but he doesn't know how they work together. He can't see down the road. He doesn't know how these things are going to affect. The scripture then takes Adam and says, as through one man all died. That's not what God told him immediately. That doesn't make God wrong. It makes God om omniscient. <laughs> if you do this, you will die. And we might say, well, God, if you told him that if you do this, all men will die, then maybe he'd try a little harder. That's not the point. He wants to be a self-made man, but he cannot see the consequences, and he can't even be certain of the issues before him. And this is all over my life right now. Let's see, this, I have a daughter now who knows how to lie, and kind of effectively. I don't know how to rightfully arbitrate justice. I don't know who hit who. Someone deserves punishment. Justice has not been done in this situation, but I don't know. And I can't punish her if I don't know, and I might be punishing wrongly. When people come to me and they have an issue, as my professors always told me, put your hands in your pocket, grab a coin, and feel both sides. Two sides to every story. 
And even in my own heart, my side of the story just wells up, and I stop myself, and I'm like, there's something I'm missing. There's no reason for me to be feeling this way. There's something I'm missing, and so I calm myself down, and I wait, and I wait, and then I hear it. Okay, that's why they did that. I'm way off base. I can't see everything rightly. Yeah, I know the difference between right and wrong. Now, here, I don't know what it means for 10 years from now. Think about children, again, he's, <laughs> this is a four-year-old sermon I've added to it, but that's why we're at 10 after. Um, he's gotten here, uh, Hayden, he preached this sermon last, well, Matt did. Think of a child learning to get around for the first time. Hayden will flip himself around on the couch, right, having no clue what a fall will feel like, right? He's absolutely, has no idea what the consequences look like, right? I was going to take that out, but I found that it's still applicable today, right? No one? Okay. You guys know Hayden. Thank you. He flips himself around on the couch, and he has no idea what a fall will feel like. He has no clue the consequences of his decisions. Um, that's just kids. It's not even a baby. Uh, that's where we're at. We're on the couch of life, flipping around, and have no idea what it means to fall off the edge of the couch. So now man's decided that instead of leaving the moral legislation up to God, that he's going to be capable of doing that himself. This is partly why we cannot trust in our logic today. We can't see all the consequences of our decisions. We can't even guarantee that we're seeing clearly the issues that are before our eyes if we have all the pieces. Because the lie that we believe totally reinterpreted life. You, you cannot get away from today if you don't recognize the totality of what happened. The woman saw and visual evidence is potent. God allows the forbidden its full appeal to her. There are so many things that we see that just enamor us and draw us in. The pattern of sin runs right through this act. Eve listened to a creature instead of the creator. She followed her impressions against her instructions. And she made self-fulfillment her goal. Her affections and her ambitions. That's the other component of that totality. See, this, this prospect of material, aesthetic, and mental enrichment seems to add up to life itself for her, right? And that's what the serpent presents. You will be like God. You will not die. You'll be just like him. That's everything. What else do you want? That's life itself. That's everything that you could possibly ask for. And the world still offers it to us. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It still offers it to us every day. But man's lifeline is spiritual. Namely God's word and the response of faith. And if we break it, it's death. Death. Totality. Death. This is why we are dependent upon God's word. God's word is clear, it is knowable, and it is knowable with confidence. She took and ate. It's so simple the act, and so hard it's undoing. She took and ate. 
But God is going to taste himself. God himself is going to taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. Here, it is a kingdom that perishes. And he ate. Led as the woman had been, instead of leading. It's a curious way to achieve divinity. Trying to outwit God. God says, you lead her and you subdue the animals. I bet if I let the animals subdue me and I'm led by my wife, I got a way in. That makes no sense. It is the exact opposite of what God said to do. The man and the woman have been sold a false idea of evil, right? Because evil is just, it's not evil, it's just something beyond good, right? Of, of wisdom instead being sophistication. But now of greatness is greed. That's what happens here. She took and ate and he ate. So now, understand the consequences of our sin. Understand the consequences of our sin. The serpent's promise of eyes to see and eyes to be opened came true in its fashion, right? But it was a grotesque anticlimax. Their eyes became open, all right. Not to a dream of enlightenment, but now man saw the familiar world and it was spoiled in his seeing. Projecting evil onto innocence. Titus 1.15, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. For both their minds and their consciences are defiled. This breaks my heart. Projecting evil Onto innocence. It's the reason that a man can't be out with another woman to protect his own temptation, but also so that the world doesn't perceive anything as wrong. Why, for 12 years since I've been in ministry, I've always had to make sure that there's someone else there if I'm waiting around with another female, usually. We had a youth facility, and there would be people that are leaving, right? And all of a sudden, it comes down to me, a junior high guy and a senior girl, and the senior girl for some reason can't drive because she's Isaac, and <laughs> waiting on a ride, right? He just got his license. Um, waiting on a ride, and I say, bro, I'm sorry, mom, that came to pick him up. I'm sorry, can you guys wait until her ride gets here? Why? Perception. Because the world views it as evil. Things that need not be, things that are pure and fine and good relationship even, viewed as evil. And, and that is entirely what happens at the fall. The serpent comes and he says, this beautiful picture, evil. Put evil on it. You take something that is good and pure and make it evil. His eyes are open, all right. But not, he's not seeing what he thought he would see. And ultimately what happens, he reacts to good with shame and flight. His new consciousness of good and evil was both like and unlike the divine knowledge. It differs in the fact that this innocence is broken. He sees it as evil. It's the same way that a sick man 
is aware of his aching body, and no one else is. Only he sees and feels it. Sure, he can go to a doctor, and a doctor can understand it, but he doesn't feel it. And the healthy man, no concern for the sick man, no idea what he's going through. Adam is a sick man, and he can see and feel everything. These fig leaves that they use were pathetic enough, as it were, as our human expedients tend to be. But the instinct to cover themselves was sound, and God confirms it. Because sin's proper fruit is shame. Sin's proper fruit is shame. Our culture and our hearts want to remove the shame of sin with every fiber in our bodies. Sex outside of marriage in any capacity, from homosexual to just premarital sex, remove any shame. Remove it. From the lies and the language that we use with each other, remove the shame. It's just language. The way that we view people around us as tools to be used instead of cared for, Remove the shame. Since proper fruit is shame. And the couple is now ill at ease together, and they experience a foretaste of a fallen human relations just in general. There's no road back. There's no road back. The answer is not to be in a nudist colony and to make a, a, this cult of exposure and just saying, well, let's get back to the way it was. That's done. There's no going back. God's way is forward. Because even when the body's redeemed, Romans 8, 23, and love is perfect, we're not going back to Eden. Our glorified bodies will be clothed, clothed with glory. 2 Corinthians 5, 4, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. There are consequences of our sin. So let's look at what these mostly look like. The relationship with our spouse is going to be difficult. You're going to see three different aspects. Relationships, work, dominion, and God. All right? Now, in this particular case, the relationship with our spouse will be difficult. Our relationship with people is going to be difficult. Eve just happens to be the only other people at this time. All right? And we're going to see that in the next chapter that relationship with people goes poorly. Both of their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves. The perfect trust and intimacy that they have had is now gone. They make coverings to hide their nakedness. To the woman, he gives her curse. There would be pain and childbearing. There's an article on Desiring God that I think is helpful in looking at that. It just came out. You can find it. But think about childbearing now we have medicine. Think about childbearing then. Oftentimes they would just die. Or there would be scars, long-lasting uh, hindrances to their regular lives. But then also we have this piece of, your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. The woman now desires her husband. And some people say is sexual desire, but we don't see that. 
There's nothing else in this passage to indicate sexual desire. What it seems to be indicating and what it talks about explicitly later in chapter 4, verse 7, is that it's a longing to take control over him. There's great reference to authority structure here, not sexual desire or preference. Great reference to authority structure. God has established his rule. God has given man dominion over creation. God has given woman to aid man in dominion. I think it's clear that her desire will be to take the lead from him. And how does this typically happen? Guys, one of my biggest encouragements to you, specifically ladies, you're not the Holy Spirit. You're not. That is not your, that's not your role. Your role is to be helpmate. What does that mean? What am I trying to say? Oftentimes what I see in, in marital issues is this concern of, of his sin. And you know what? She's about 100% right. Because guys, we're doofuses, all right? We are goobers to the extreme, and our wives are often right. That doesn't mean that she's still the Holy Spirit. Guys, ladies, you're probably right, okay? I can tell you that from Scripture, <laughs> I think, um, but certainly from experience. That doesn't mean that you're the Holy Spirit. You are to be his helpmate. Imagine what it would look like if instead of always being the convictor, you were his champion. What does it look like to champion your husband? He has the Holy Spirit if he's, if he's redeemed. Not just pressing on him, in him. All right? Champion him. What does it mean to champion him? Love him. Love him through. Love him with. Pray to the Holy Spirit all the things that you want to say. And he'll say them. Trust me. And it's much more effective because you cannot change your husband. You cannot. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And trust me, I, I'm walking this path with you, ladies, with your husbands, and even with well, me. Um, I can't change your husbands. There's nothing I can do. This sermon could be falling on deaf ears. I trust in the Holy Spirit with these words. We cannot change them, champion them, love them, walk with them. That's what we see. This love, though, has been torn away. Now the desire is to rule over him. Now the desire is to be the one who just sets the pace. Guys, this is mostly in Ephesians. Quit being goobers, okay? Is that, is that sufficient, ladies? Okay. Um, I wish we had a house gathering to pick that up with, but uh, quit being goobers. All right. Um, champion your husbands, ladies, because this is the essence of the curse is that your desire will be to rule over him. And a very Christian way to do that is to be the Holy Spirit. We have to be careful. So, what does this look like Well, for the men, too? It's this. The, the man is no longer going to lead in a loving, self-sacrificial way. I mean, that was God's design, is that he would be loving and self-sacrificial. Instead, he follows Eve's lead. And so now, the loving, self-sacrificial leadership here is replaced by a harsh Rule. It portrays a marriage relationship in which control has slipped from the fully personal realm where we recognize each other as souls, as image bearers, and as our helpmate. And it moves to this kind of realm of like instinctive urges, whether they're passive or active, and we just act on that. This feeling-based marriage relationship. And so instead of loving and cherishing, it becomes this desire to dominate. Men to have their way. Women to usurp control. 
Now again, this goes beyond the marriage. The marriage is the, is the picture of human relationship. Right? It's Trinitarian based in the way that we, we look at this relationship of, of, of submission and headship. But this goes to your relationship with each other. Our relationships are screwed up in totality. It's back. This is a life-altering lie that we believed. So our relationships are broken. Our dominion over creation is going to be painful. I think in mercy, the curse is on man's realm and not man himself. But still, nothing constructive is said to Adam, in whom all die. There will be sorrow and sweat and dust. Those are the answers to the fantasy of you will be like God. Satan says you will be like God. What does he get? Sorrow, sweat, dust. And it leads to this cry that we see in Ecclesiastes 1.8 that all things are full of weariness. Working the land is going to involve much more sweat and hard labor. Creation now is going to be experienced as an enemy. Man, who was supposed to be like God, now views God as the enemy and a rebel. And he views the earth, too, as an enemy. See that our relationship with God is broken. Man turns away from God in rebellion, and God turns away in judgment. This warm friendship is now destroyed. But God still comes to man. In verse 8, it's the sound, not the voice, the sound that they hear first. Right? And what's their impulse? To hide. To hide their face from the presence of the Lord. You see, in Revelation 6.15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's the response of the sinner. What's the response of the redeemed? No longer, Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's the response of the redeemed, but it's not like that in the garden anymore. He's afraid. Where are you? God's first word to fallen man has all the marks of grace. What should we expect? And we're reading this story, and we're so familiar with it now, we miss this blatant, obvious thing. What should happen after they eat? They die. And we just skip over that. They didn't die. What happens then? God comes in grace. It's a question, right? Because he must draw rather than drive Adam out of hiding. You don't go in there and shake him and pull him out. He draws him out. Only a voice that will penetrate his concealment will remove him from his fear. And God asks questions all the time to those that are wondering, where are you, Adam? Why, he asks to Saul, why do you persecute me? 
what are you doing? He asked the legion. And Cain is going to hear all three of these things in 4, 6, 9, and 10 in the next chapter. What have you done? Where's your brother Abel? <coughs> in his grace, God continues to seek after sinful human beings. He calls us back into fellowship with him. It's by nature, though, that we always run away. Adam's afraid, and he's ashamed because he's naked before God. Who's told you that you're naked? And Adam's answer conceals the cause behind his symptoms. Right? He's afraid that the first mention of fear in Scripture so far is significant. The shrinking from God remains part of our fallen condition today. The old innocence is gone. Because the second answer admits the truth, but it angles it against the woman and ultimately God. The woman that you gave me. Man's learning quickly, but he's retreating into verbal hiding. And the only thing that that does is put a fresh obstacle in the way of mercy. Now we have to work our way through that. God, by addressing man, woman, and serpent in this order, has shown how he regards their degrees of responsibility. God judges the guilty, just as he promised. All three of them. Satan was wrong. His word, the serpent's word against God's. Because who was wrong? God judges. And, and, and look at this. And, and everything that follows in this, in this picture of rebellion and in these curses that are given, God's sovereignty never shifts. It never shifts. It is absolutely undiminished. Man's dominion and man's sin simply set sovereignty in a different context. They do not threaten it. Because God's warning of death was not just a threat. God banishes them from the garden. They continue to exist physically, but spiritually, they're dead. They're cut off from God's presence. And eventually, they're going to die physically as well. It's interesting that the ground from which he was taken, you see in, in 19, it's that half of the truth about him. The fact that he is a creature made from the dust, let alone the fact that he's an image bearer. What does Adam cling to? He's chosen to live according to the dust, and he must end where he belongs then. He will return to it. And so we see the spread of sin and death. In Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, we see murder. We see just the general mortality of Genesis 5. It's the first genealogy in the Bible. And all the offspring are still made in the image of God. Even Adam's naming of Eve post-fall as the mother shows that he has some understanding of this hope that was in verse 15. But this genealogy, while they're still made in the image of God, and, and it appears that God's promise to Eve is being held true, that it still ends with, and then he died. And then he died. And then he died. Death comes to all. And in Genesis 6, three chapters later, a few generations have come and gone. Sin is very much alive. And the Lord regretted. This statement, God regretted. His heart was filled with pain. And so he resolves to act in judgment. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The resulting flood causes terrible destruction. It's an absolute reversal of creation. Totality. It's an absolute reversal of creation. 
The division between earth and the waters which God established on the first day of creation is undone. There's a return to this chaos. And what happens next? The Tower of Babel. The lowest point in the Bible so far. This tower is a vivid symbol of our sinful desire to exalt ourselves and create our own kingdom independently of God. But God will not tolerate this, and so he frustrates their efforts. He scatters them throughout the earth and gives them different languages. The kingdom has now perished. The perfect creation that God had established is now a distant dream. The pattern has been destroyed by sin. Humans are no longer God's people by nature. We have turned away from him. We no longer live in his place. We've been banished from the garden. We reject his rule and we live as if we ruled the world. God continues to reign, but he reigns in judgment. And as a result, we do not enjoy God's blessing, but instead we face his curse. The Bible could have ended here. Should have. I should. But the story continues. The gospel story continues. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God, from the very beginning, promises that one day the offspring of the woman shall strike a deadly blow to the serpent. And through this deadly strike, God will redeem the earth to himself. He will once again establish his kingdom. We see that God's intention is to show us that these three relationships are broken, but in Christ they will be made eternally good. And not just a restoring to the pattern. Not just a restoring to last week. Not back to nakedness. Not back to a man on the earth working the ground, but back to the exalted body. The entire gathering of God's people from all time clothed in glory from the Lamb. In His perfect place. Not a good place. He's moving the story. The way is forward. Through the work of Christ, our relationship with our spouse is being redeemed. Our relationship is being formed into its original intention where the husband sacrificially leads. Lay your life down, gentlemen where the woman willingly and willfully submits and follows. This is not dictatorial leadership. We have plenty of sermons on this. This is not a quiet doormat following. This is an intuitive, well-oiled machine. Be a champion of your husband. Husbands, lay your life down. Through the work of Christ, our dominion over creation is being redeemed. It's the mission of God is to exercise dominion over creation. Arguably, that's what's happening in redemption, right? In redemption, dead things are being made alive. Things that have been expired, that are perished, are being made alive. And so we as the people of God are exercising dominion as we bring redemption to the world. 
And ultimately, through the work of Christ, our hearts are redeemed to love, to trust, and to obey God. That relationship that we lost in the garden, we were sons of God. He provided for us, and not only did he just give it to us, we had relationship with him that is being restored. Love, trust, and obedience to God through the work of Jesus. We will willfully worship him. We will be in relationship with him, and he will be our one true king because he's the second Adam. The first Adam was supposed to be the servant king over all creation. But through Adam came death. And the second Adam, we see Ephesians chapter 1, and all things will be placed under his feet. Jesus is the greater Adam. He is the servant king. And so if you've not seen these application points coming from a mile away, here they are explicitly. The text is asking us these questions today. Do you love, trust, and obey your decision and what is right and good? Do you love, trust, and obey your own logic and your own legislation? Do you worship your own autonomy? Do you stake your joy and satisfaction in your ability to choose independent of God? Because the reality is, if it's yes to any of these questions, then when we look at your relationships, we're going to see the effects of it. In a marriage, it might be, it's going to be rocky. It's going to be lacking joy. It's struggling. In your dominion and your work on this earth, it's going to be fruitless and painful and boring and not satisfying. And in your relationship with God, it's the last thing that you put time into. You feel that God doesn't even hear you. And you don't live in the boundaries that he has given, and you won't experience the boundless joy that he has. That is, that's, that's Matt and I's job in a nutshell. These are the effects that we see, and it doesn't take any great work on our part to say, you're struggling here. This is the evidence. So we need to examine this. And the danger is we're going to say, nope, I got it. I'm good. I can fix that. If she would just do this, if he would just do this, if my boss would not do this, that's how I'll fix it. And just like Adam, we're saying, it's the woman that you gave me. You wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't do this. The text would say to us this, the gospel is our only hope. Verse 15, that's our only hope. The shed blood of Jesus that covers our sin, that sets us free to submit to God, that sets us free to love, to trust, and obey God. Jesus is the Word. Satan attacked the Word, and he attacked him again, and he lost. So are you placing your trust in yourself, or are you placing it in the Word? Genesis 3, 24, the end of the chapter. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Every detail of this verse, with its flame and sword and the turning every way, actively excludes the sinner. His way back is more than hard. It's resisted. He cannot save himself. 
the cherubim, God's multiform and awesome throne barriers. And Ezekiel's visions, we've seen elsewhere as symbolic guardians of the Holy of Holies, right? Their forms are embroidered on the veil that bars access to it. The ones that are on the ark looking down at the mercy seat. Those cherubim, these flame, sword-bearing, lightsaber angels are embroidered onto the veil that separates us from the Holy of Holies. And at the death of Christ, this veil was written too from the top to the bottom. And the way to God is thrown open. That's our only hope. It's not back through the garden. It's through the Holy of Holies to the King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy. For your kindness in pursuing us. Father, when we would run any and every other way, and you came and you drew us out. Father, I pray I would have the compassion to draw my own children out when they are afraid. Father, you didn't command Adam. You sought him. You provided. And you restored in a way that only you could. Father, we have such a great expectation of death. And Father, you give life. Help us rest this week in the goodness of your law, that we don't take away from what you've provided, that we don't add to your prohibitions. But Father, we recognize the care and concern you have for us. Father, do your work in and among us. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.